flown back from a Christmas in Sweden. My first day of work for the year, I actually had to call in sick because I started getting kind of like a cold. And then the second day I was due to go back to work, I was getting ready for work and I was straightening my hair and my whole right arm from probably my shoulder down to my hand just completely collapsed and went dead. I had to go all through the A&E wards to try and find the nurse in charge. There were literally people getting like IVs and getting tests done while they were just sitting in a chair. And I thought there's no way that I'd be getting a bed anytime soon. And obviously people need it more than me. So luckily they signed me off and I got to go home for the night. And everyone kind of thought, what? Like, cause I was so young and I was so able-bodied that everyone kind of thought I was just there to see somebody. And then I just waited there, I think for about three or four days, just trying to get tests done and scans done. I mean, I think I saw physio at the time to try and get my arm up and moving, and then I was released home. My neuropsychologist actually said, look, I actually know somebody who is a neurophysio. So she's a, you know, a physio, but she also has a background in neurologist and neurology. So she said, I really highly recommend you go, go to her. She had recommended her to me before, and I thought, oh, I'll go to this other physio because it's closer to my work. But after my first appointment with the neurophysio, she actually got me up. She was giving me exercises to kind of help my stability, help my core muscles, and help me do things that stopped my neck from hurting. Hello, I'm Mark Goodyear. This is Stroke Stories, the podcast that seeks out and hears from stroke survivors. A large proportion of strokes, maybe between 25 and 30%, have an unknown cause. And because that means treatment options for preventing another can be less clear, that can cause a great deal of anxiety for stroke survivors. In this episode, we hear the first part of Jessica Penberthy's story. Originally from New Zealand, now living in London, Jessica suffered her first stroke at the age of 28. I've led a pretty healthy lifestyle. I was playing netball, but actually won, and I was due to sign up to a second season. And just before I signed, I had my second stroke. So I played a lot of netball once a week. Um, I went to the gym maybe three times a week, sometimes two, sometimes four. I done a lot of hiking. We lived in London, so we travelled a lot. So yeah, pretty fit and healthy, really, which is really strange because when you look at the risks for stroke, it's obesity, it's unhealthy eating, it's smoking, it's lack of exercise, all of that kind of stuff, which none of that I was. <laughs> My first stroke was completely out of the blue. I'd flown back from a Christmas in Sweden. My first day of work for the year, I actually had to call in sick because I started getting kind of like a cold. And then the second day I was due to go back to work, I was getting ready for work and I was straightening my hair and my whole right arm from probably my shoulder down to my hand just completely collapsed and went dead. So I lost all feeling, all movement. Yeah, it was literally like dead weight. Being 28, I thought, well, this is weird. You know, what's going on here? Like the only thing I could associate it to was having a stroke because, you know, people post videos online about, you know, if someone you know, watch this because if someone, you know, has a stroke, you'll know what to do. And one of the things is, you know, they lose the ability to move or, you know, a certain part of their body. And so I thought, oh, this is weird. I must be having a stroke. So I actually called the 111. I think it's the NHS health line. And because I was so young, I thought, well, that's weird. We'll send someone over to have a look and check you out. So the paramedics kind of checked me out, done my heart test, all that kind of stuff. 
nothing came up. The only, like, I was feeling completely fine. The only thing was my whole arm was just completely gone. So they said, well, we'll send you to hospital and see what can come of it. And I was literally, I was sitting in hospital, I think it was St Mary's Hospital in Paddington. I sat there all day kind of waiting around, waiting to be seen. I was finally seen by someone, had a couple of scans. And then they kind of said, we need your CT scans come up fine. We need to get an MRI scan done. But we've got to wait for a bed to become available before you can get your scan done. It won't be till the morning. And being an A&E in St Mary's Hospital, it was just completely chock-a-block. And because I felt completely fine, there were other people that needed a bed more than me. You know, I was trying to find, I said, you know, speak to the nurse in charge because um, I said, well, look, there's no point in me staying here. I can just go home, give someone else the bed, and I can come back tomorrow morning. So I only lived a couple of tube stops away. And they said, oh, you need to speak to the nurse in charge to see if they'll sign that off. I had to go th- all through the A&E wards to try and find the nurse in charge. There were literally people getting like IVs and getting tests done while they were just sitting in a chair. And I thought there's no way that I'd be getting a bed anytime soon. And obviously people need it more than me. So luckily they signed me off and I got to go home for the night. And then I went in the next day. They did the MRI, I think 11 in the morning. And I waited all day in the waiting room until... I think it was the night time. It would have been like very, very like late in the day, just before home time kind of thing that they told me that my MRI showed something. And I said, oh, is it a stroke? You know, because they mentioned a blood clot. Oh, so it's like a stroke. And the lady said, no, 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 it's not a stroke. It's been a blood clot. And I was like, oh, that's weird. And so she said, look, we need to transfer you to Charing Cross. So I got transferred to Charing Cross later that evening walked up to the ward in Charing Cross and they said, oh, sorry, visiting hours are closed. Who are you here to see? And I was like, I'm Jessica, you know, I'm your new patient. And everyone kind of thought, what? Like, Because I was so young and I was so able-bodied that everyone kind of thought I was just there to see somebody. And then I just waited there, I think, for about three or four days just trying to get tests done and scans done. I mean, I think I saw physio at the time to try and get my arm up and moving and then I was released home. Jessica was only in hospital for a few days. They sent me home. Um, while I was in hospital, I saw like an occupational therapist and physio who gave me some like bright yellow putty and gave me some hand exercises to do. So while I was in hospital, I was literally just doing all my exercises as much as possible to try and regain movement in my hand because literally there's nothing else that I could do. My right hand's my, my dominant hand. I do everything with it. I went back to work. Before I went back to work, though, I went home and started seeing an occupational therapist. They came came to my house and tried, you know, we kind of set goals on what I wanted to do. My main goal was to get back to work. So we started trying to do exercise in my hand, trying to manage, you know, um, fatigue, stress, all that kind of stuff, which when I was quite young, a lot of that mental stuff, I kind of pushed to the side. So my main problem at that stage was my hand and getting that ready so I could go back to work. So I did a phase return. It went well. So my work at the time were kind of like, oh, don't worry, don't rush, just take your time coming back to work, everything's sorted, you have full sick pay while while you're returning back to work and just, you know, don't worry about anything. And then once I started phasing back to work, they were kind of like, oh, um, we're only going to pay you for the hours that you work. So obviously when you've got a plan set out and goals set out of what you you know what you want to do and what you need to do and everyone's happy with the plan to have that change was quite 
distressing. I guess that was my first kind of taste of the whole emotional aspect to me after having a stroke. So a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, a lot of a lot of emotions that I didn't really know how to deal with um, that I'd never dealt with before. Because we had to get our new visas for the UK, so we actually booked a trip back to New Zealand, and you know I kind of recouped and rested and just chilled there for a few weeks, and then and then by the time I came back to London, I was just basically you know straight back into work again full time. And I think because I've always done really high intense work, so it's quite quite high level, quite stressful. You need to use your brain a lot and thinking and problem solving. So going from just calm environment to straight back into work it was very stressful I didn't enjoy it and I randomly got approached by someone who said oh I've got this other opportunity for you it'll be great and I thought yep I need to change my life you know <laughs> I think once you had once you have a stroke you you try to minimize the stress in your life and try and have more of a work-life balance well I did I started my new job I absolutely loved it I kind of by that stage had gone back to just a normal life so for me, initially, being a young stroke survivor, it probably sounds weird now, but I was embarrassed because, you know, being 28, I thought strokes only happen to old people. Oh, my God, I'm not telling anyone. I don't want anyone to know that I've had a stroke. It's embarrassing. So I think I only told maybe like a very, very small handful of friends and just my close family. I think... In my new job, only one of my colleagues knew because I told him um, we were very close. But after I started my new job, it was going really good. You know, I was there for a couple of years. I started experiencing really bad migraines. I've always had the odd migraine, but I started getting really, really debilitated migraines to the point where I'd have to go and sit in the bathroom for like 20 minutes and just you know, kind of pray that it goes away and try and like keep my eyes closed and that kind of thing. So dealing with that was quite hard. And if you're not a migraine sufferer, you've never dealt with the migraine, it's really hard to understand what people go through. Luckily for me, my manager also suffered migraines. And then one, another one of my colleagues also suffered migraines. So it was easy to kind of just deal with it, you know, and just, they just let you do, or let me do whatever I needed to do to fix it and move on with my job. But yeah, there was a lot of changes in my job. Like my boss left. I had a lot of appointments, which were really slow. So, you know, with the public health system, I'd get one test done that would come back negative. And then they'd say, okay, well, now that this is negative, now let's do the next test. So then I'd get the next test done and then that would come back negative. You know, so I think I saw hematologists, cardiologists, I had several blood tests done several scans after my stroke, physio, occupational therapists. And I was kind of managing that while I was still working full-time and back to normal. And then I think after my boss left, that was a very high, you know, very, very stressful time for me, um, not knowing whether I had a job or what I was going to do if you know, I'd lose my job. And I did have a very elevated kind of sense of stress and worry, like constantly. But my private life was awesome. Like we went traveling all the time. I played netball by now premiership it was going really really well despite being fit and healthy jessica suffered a serious stroke which caused a great deal of stress and anxiety still to come on stroke stories jessica on the effect that her stroke had on her spatial awareness it affects your ability to work out or understand where your body is in space so for example if I close my eyes, 
and I have my arm out in front of me, I don't really know if my arm is straight out in front of me, if it's up too high, if it's down too low, if it's to the left or the right. And on receiving therapy. I started seeing a neuropsychologist. I managed to find a lady who, she's a psychologist, but she also has a background in neurology. So she actually helps people after they've had a brain injury, whether it's concussion or whether it's you know, a stroke or whether it's something else. She helps them kind of through that process. So that was quite a key thing for me because, you know, having two strokes, especially the life changing one, like my second one, I was extremely emotionally all over the place. Let's hear about Jessica's second stroke. One evening, this is leading up to my second stroke, we were watching a movie. We hadn't done much because obviously London weather, we were just at home, it was March, it was freezing. We were watching a movie and then I went to stand up after our movie and you know how sometimes you stand up too fast, you get a bit of a head rush? Well, I stood up and the whole room was spinning, but it wasn't just spinning around, it was spinning sideways and, you know, you don't really know, I don't really know where the floor was, where the ceiling was. You know, I kind of felt like I'd just been whacked around the head with something. I started getting a really bad headache and I thought, this is weird. And I couldn't, I physically couldn't stand. So I just had to lie down and I thought, oh no, I'm having another stroke. I kind of knew straight away that this is, this is not okay. And then I called 111 again and, the, and I said, look, I've had a stroke before. I think I'm having another stroke. And then they got paramedics to come around and take, you know, take a look at me and see what was going on. By that stage, I had a constant headache. I was constantly vomiting. I feel like looking back, the paramedics were just very slow. You know, they're like, oh, you know, she's fine. You know, I said, oh, you know, can you walk to the ambulance? Can you, you know, can you sit on the little wheelchair type thing to take me to the ambulance? And because my body was just in agony, I couldn't even see because every time I opened my eyes, the whole room was spinning still. So they literally had to carry me onto the wheelchair and then wheel me out. And, and then I went to hospital. I think I bounced around about two or three different hospitals. So because it was a Saturday night, no MRI places were open. I think I went to the Royal Free. I went to UCL. And then I think at UCL on the Monday, they'd done an MRI and found that I actually had a cerebellum stroke. It was at that stage that they said, oh, this is really bad. We need to operate. Otherwise, she's going to potentially die or be really severely disabled. The cerebellum has got the same amount of neurons on its surface as the main brain does. So it's very, very important in your function. So I had a massive stroke there. And because it was swelling, because it obviously it had taken so long to get an MRI, it was swelling and started pushing on the brain stem, which is obviously goes straight down into your um, spinal cord. So I had to then get operated on, I think that afternoon. And I think at the time they, they said to my partner, you know, is it okay if we do surgery, we'll take out three centimetres of her skull to relieve the pressure? And he was like, you know, we can't say, yes, that's fine, just do it. But now feeling my skull, it feels a lot bigger than three centimetres. Given the severity, my mother flew over from Australia and my partner's parents flew over from New Zealand. And then, yeah, I kind of woke up at the Queen Square Hospital. I think they call it NHNN. I think that's National Hospital for Neurology and Neurosurgery. And I spent a week there 
And it's weird, I think, I don't know whether it was because I was on really heavy medication or just being in a hospital, you know, environment. I left, you know, I kind of wanted to get out of there and and go home. Obviously, being in in a hospital environment when you're young, you're surrounded by older people with a lot worse conditions. So it's quite hard to be in that environment. Yeah, so I was released home, I think, after a week of being in the hospital. I had physio come. I had occupational therapists come. My second stroke by far was my worst stroke. I had to learn to walk again. It affects your ability to work out or understand where your body is in space. So, for example, if I close my eyes and I have my arm out in front of me, I don't really know if my arm is straight out in front of me, if it's up too high, if it's down too low, if it's to the left or the right, or if I maybe walk around a corner, you know, there to the left, there to the right. I just couldn't really get where my body was, where my mind wanted to take my body. My, my body wouldn't listen to what I was trying to tell it. And also because I had really bad vertigo and the spinning, even just looking at the walls in the hospital they weren't straight. So I'd look at like a square wall or an oblong wall and I'd look at it for a while being like, that's not straight. Why have they not built that straight? And after a while I'd realise, well, hold on, it's actually me. You know, I, why is my mind not understanding that that's a straight line? Had massive brain surgery. So they cut out a massive piece of my cerebellum from my right side and took out a big chunk of my skull to allow room for it to swell. Because it was the way it was swelling was down towards my neck and my brainstem. So they wanted to try and push it out, you know, will allow it space in another direction to swell. Even going from sitting to standing was really hard for me. If I'd changed from sitting to standing or vice versa, I'd just get really dizzy and really disorientated. So I couldn't shower by myself. I couldn't really walk by myself. You know, there's a lot of things I really had to to learn all over again, really. So going home was quite difficult at the start, but it was something I knew I had to do. I couldn't, you know, stay in the hospital forever. After her first two strokes, Jessica had to work hard on rewiring her brain so she could move again. With strokes, you'll never get a stroke in the same place as far as I've been told. So basically, once you have a stroke, whether it's a bleed or whether it's a clot, Whatever part of the brain that it damages, it basically dies. So that's one of the reasons why they actually cut out part of my cerebellum because it was dead. You know, once it's died and it's been starved of oxygen, it's not going to be able to recover. When a part of your brain dies, your brain, you know, when you're trying to relearn, and that's why rehabilitation is so important because it teaches your brain to kind of reconnect different pathways. So say, for example, if you did, you know, if you just moved your arm, you can still move your arm after your stroke, but you have to keep doing it repetitively. So, you know, it tells your brain this is what needs to happen and it starts reconnecting and making it different pathways, you know, to be able to make that movement or whatever you want to do possible again. All three of my strokes, one was in the top left part of my brain one was in my cerebellum so the bottom right hand side of my brain and my third stroke was in the middle right hand side of my brain so all three completely different areas after my second stroke I really really tried pushing 
all the health professionals, look, my first stroke I thought was a once-off. My second stroke, this is not okay. Like, why am I having a stroke? You can't now tell me. Oh, we don't know. I said, you need to push and find a reason. So when I had my second stroke, I was really upset because I was still waiting for tests to be done following my first stroke. That's how long it took. So my first stroke was in 2017, January, and my second stroke was in 2019 in March. And I was still waiting for tests to be done for my stroke in 2017. So I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and tried to get people to take me seriously and, and, you know, try and find out, you know, what caused my strokes. And I even went privately to a private neurologist who then looked over all my records and said, you know, there's, there's not much that you've had done. You're on the right track. You know, there's no, no other tests we can have done. And that kind of put my mind at ease a little bit because I think it's about 20% of people have a cryptogenic stroke, which means that they don't know what caused your stroke. It could be anything. You know, even if even if you are, you know, someone who doesn't exercise, someone that eats really unhealthy food, someone who smokes, they can't necessarily 100% put your stroke down to, yes, that's the cause of your stroke, unless there's something blindingly obvious. So, you know, I was kind of getting back to work, I was getting a lot of medical support after my second stroke, because obviously it was massive. So I started seeing a neuropsychologist. I managed to find a lady who, she's a psychologist, but she also has a background in neurology. So she actually helps people after they've had a brain injury, whether it's concussion or whether it's, you know, a stroke or whether it's something else. She helps them kind of through that process. So that was quite a key thing for me because, you know, having two strokes, especially a life-changing one like my second one, I was extremely emotionally all over the place. I was stressed. I was tired. I was up and down from changing different medications. I was really, really scared that I'd have another stroke. and That was probably my biggest thing for me. And I didn't really emotionally know how to cope with it all. Plus, on top of that, you've got fatigue. So for me, I thought, well, let's go to this neuropsychologist and see how she can help. So I saw her and she was really good at giving me ways to cope with stress, ways to de-stress, ways to relax. I had a certain point in my life where I had all this stuff going on and I'd survived. I'd do one small thing, like if I was waiting in a line and the line took too long, I'd get stressed out or you know, small things would just really, really upset me. And I was like, this seems bizarre. I've never been like this at all. And she kind of explained to me that because I've gone through so much and just kind of put it to the side and just to move on with my life, anything small would would basically set me off. Whereas just you need to try and, you know, deal with all of the emotions that are actually going on and learn, you know, learn about what's happened to you and give you give yourself time to recover. So I would strongly recommend I guess anyone who has had a brain injury to see a neuropsychologist because they are completely different to psychologists and they understand a lot of the feelings and emotions that stroke survivors go through as opposed to just, you know, someone who hasn't had a brain injury. After my second stroke, I had this really weird pain. So anytime I tried to run or run emotion like jump, skip, you know, any jog, anything like that, I'd have a shooting pain straight down my neck all the way down my back. So I couldn't play netball. 
I couldn't even run. I couldn't go to the gym. Doing physio, I had to do really, really slow things. I actually went to three or four different physios. One physio, they kind of gave me a light massage and taped up part of my neck. The second physio was the oddest experience I've ever had. She kind of had me laying on the bed, had her hand on my stomach, just listening to me breathe. It was very holistic, which didn't suit me. And then the third physio, she basically just massage, really, really lightly massage around my neck and my neck muscles. So none of the physios I actually went to dealt with my, my issues. And my neuropsychologist actually said, look, I actually know somebody who is a neurophysio. So she's a, you know, a physio, but she also has a background in neurologist and neurology. So she said, I really highly recommend you go, go to her. She had recommended her to me before and I thought, oh, I'll go to this other physio because it's closer to my work. But after my first appointment with the neurophysio, she actually got me up. She was giving me exercises to kind of help my stability, help my core muscles and help me do things that stopped my neck from hurting. And literally within one, one appointment, I was like, oh my God, this is a life changer. Like this is definitely helping. So I would probably say, you know, if you don't think that normal physios are helping, definitely see someone who has a neuro background because it did make all the difference to me. Coming up in part two of Jessica Penberthy's stroke story. You know, when you're in a place where you've got no family support to help you or, you know, where your friends are, you know, traveling or busy with their own lives, it's actually quite hard and you realize how isolated you are. So we decided to kind of go go to Australia um, and see my family for a holiday for Christmas. So we actually went back to Australia and had a really nice break. Please do subscribe to our podcast and rate and comment on the episodes you hear and like to help us spread the word. And if you are or you know of a stroke survivor and you have a story to share, we'd love to hear from you. Contact us via Twitter or Instagram. Our DMs are always open. The Stroke Stories podcast was produced by Aidan Judd. I'm Mark Goodyear. Thank you for listening. Listener.